the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Tuesday, March 3rd, five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m., Mr. Roberts indeed here in the stat as we are um, every day at this time, addressing issues that impact your life and your world. And uh, welcome once again to the adults-only roller coaster ride. <laughs> and I say that because you need to have a pretty serious constitution, certainly to try to make sense out of, let alone put up with, the uh, violent ups and downs on Wall Street. We won't spend a lot of time Tonight, talking about this, but we do have an important update for you in a moment. Pat Fitucci is going to join us. Also, we'll remind you, coming up later on in tonight's show, we'll have a bit of a breakdown of the early results in today's Super Tuesday. Of course, there are uh, major polls all across the country, including our own here in California, that will weigh in a bit early for California results. You've still got two hours and 54 minutes and counting before polls close here in our fair state on this Super Tuesday. But early results and the results out of the East Coast we'll have for you a little bit later on. Pete Peterson joins us from Pepperdine University. Also, best-selling author, former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Dr. James Merritt. A new book, uniquely timed, I think, with what's going on today at the polls. It's called Character Still Matters. It's time to restore our lasting values. We'll get to that conversation in a moment, but let's first turn to the big news of the day, and that, of course, has been Wall Street's continuing response to the COVID-19 coronavirus outbreak. Earlier today, of course, the Fed decided to drop the prime rate. Jerome Powell indicating that this is going to continue, the COVID virus, to weigh in on the economy for some time, indicating this is one of the reasons why the Fed cut that key rate by half a percent this morning. The Federal Open Market Committee announced a one-half percentage point reduction in the target range for the federal funds rate bringing that range to one to one and a quarter percent. My colleagues and I took this action to help the U.S. economy keep strong in the face of new risks to the economic outlook. The spread of the coronavirus has brought new challenges and risks. The virus has afflicted many communities around the world. The virus and the measures that are being taken to contain it will surely weigh on economic activity, both here and abroad, for some time. The committee judged that the risks to the U.S. outlook have changed materially. In response, we have eased the stance of monetary policy to provide some more support to the economy. All right, let's get some insights as to why Wall Street, in spite of this, had such a negative reaction. Yesterday, of course, up significantly, well over 1,000 points. Uh, the, the, the indexes, though, didn't, uh, didn't rally as much today. Pat Vitucci joins us now, principal of Vitucci & Associates. Pat, why is this? Had, had the market sort of counted on this happening today? Of course, this is already a pre-scheduled quarterly meeting of the Federal Open Market Committee. But what is your sense in terms of why the big rally today, but sort of the the negative response on the markets today to this news? Yeah, this is quite a a shock, Craig, that the 
Federal Reserve met and voted on a half point, which normally it's a quarter point. They kind of kind of inch towards uh, easing, but this was a, a, a big uh, bite out of the apple, so to speak. <laughs> and um, when they first announced it, the Dow was up about seven or eight hundred points, and it did a complete reversal. It was down seven hundred fifty-nine points on the Dow, so it was thirteen hundred and change swing, thirteen hundred point swing midday. And we've had these thousand point swings many times in the last five or six tra- trading days. So this was quite a surprise that the Reserve would would vote for this uh, this change. They must be reading the tea leaves and saying, okay, the world economy is slowing. China, a big, big factor we know, is going to be crippled for probably another quarter or two. I don't see this turning around until, until the fall, and that's if the number of cases doesn't doesn't uh, sky uh, skyrocket. But it's uh, it, it's pretty apparent that the uh, it, all the industrial numbers coming out of the major countries, and we know Italy is beginning to have some some uh, cases show up in, in that country. So we're seeing flights being uh, canceled. We're seeing pre-screening. A, a lot of proactive active, uh, activities are going on to attempt to mitigate this, this uh, COVID-19 from spreading in any, in any great way. This is certainly indicative of the notion that, as Fed Chair related to, that they they anticipate uh, this to continue to have an impact on the markets for some time to come. I I guess the big concern is that typically uh, pulling this sort of uh, weapon out of the the toolbox is one that they use uh, when there is a significant downturn that is within the fundamentals of the economy so that they can respond to an issue. I mean, the last time we saw a major series of of declines in the overnight lending rate was on the heels of the 2008-2009 Great Recession. Uh, And of course, there was a very real economic crisis in America. And so in order to, you know, prevent the economy from completely bottoming out, uh, the Fed took the action that it took. What's ironic here, Pat, is this seems to be more singularly reactive to what's anticipated and what's happened on Wall Street, because ironically, the fundamentals of the U.S. economy remain strong. So I guess the question is, if this is what you do when you're a little bit spooked, what do you do if a real crisis comes along that has prolonged impact on the fundamentals of the economy? Yeah, this really leaves the Federal Reserve with with less weapons to fight anything that may come about that is of, is of a serious co- consequence. And so I think, frankly, a lot of economists were, were kind of shocked by the fairly radical move. And um, uh, I, I think there's some, probably there's some political pressure, I, w- I would suspect. But this is an, an election year, so sometimes, uh, Craig, we know some, some strange things can happen in an election year, and they don't want to go into a recession. As you mentioned, our U.S. economy is robust. It is stellar. Just last week, residential um, uh, sales numbers came in at eight percent higher, uh, and it was a it was a, a, a minor story. Normally, in a normal market, it would be a major event, and markets would react in a positive way. But it was really barely a ripple on the uh, on the major. Indexes, and so we're we're seeing um, 
this 10% correction, now it's defined as a correction. When you hit that 10% number, the Dow is officially down 10%. And so now the bears come out, and there's some feeling that, okay, maybe there's some more selling to, to go on. I think, and a lot of other folks I talk to, think the market is oversold. And so if you have time on your side, this may be a good buying time. After all, spring is around the corner. It's hitting 80 degrees in a lot of parts of the Bay Area today. That doesn't mean it's spring, but uh, we know in a 30 to 45 days uh, when the incidence of all kinds of flus drops precipitously, uh, the market will most likely get healthy again. Of course, we'll see how bad uh, China comes bouncing back, and Wuhan, China is certainly the epicenter for this COVID-19 uh, they've, they've got a whole lot more uh, things to work on before they get to be a healthy economy again. As we try to analyze this, did the market sort of anticipate this action yesterday? And if so, is this just sparked by ongoing coronavirus fears as we've seen more cases and certainly more deaths? Washington State over the weekend reported that five people had succumbed to the virus in that retirement home in uh, in Everett, Washington. Uh, or it, what does this say? Does, th- does this tell us that uh, the half percentage point uh, reduction in the prime failed, or is it ultimately too early to tell just what the real reaction is going to be to the Fed's decision today? Yeah, Craig, I think it's it's too early to tell. The Dow was up almost 1,300 points yesterday, so it recovered uh, about 4% yesterday, only to give back 3% today. So we're seeing 3 or 4% swings intraday or interday between one day from one day to the next. So we've got some significant uncertainty out there. Nobody really knows where this this uh, this flu is going. And so we're getting conflicting numbers throughout the day. And every time we get some top story, the Dow drops or goes up a couple hundred points either way. But it's, uh, it, it's uncertainty that we know Wall Street does not like it. And, and when there's uncertainty... The the uh, the sellers get rid of positions and move and move to cash, and that we've got to be cautious. And when John and Mary out there looking at their portfolio, Craig, I would not I would not encourage um, a lot of activity. I think this is some this time to pause and uh, sit back and watch from the bleacher seats. And and in my view. Uh, not take a lot of action. You're doing a workshop on this topic tonight, uh, perhaps too late for folks to sign up for, but you have another one scheduled for Thursday, March the 3rd, um, taking place in Newark. Yeah, we're at the Doubletree uh, Newark tonight, uh, Doubletree Hilton on Valentine Road, and we have a couple seats left tonight. If anybody wants to stop by, we've got dinner at 6.30. Uh, Thursday, the same thing, 6.30, please sign up, go to our website, don't invest and forget, or call our toll-free number, 888-PLAN-WISE. And so we can, we'll be able to accommodate a couple more of your uh, listeners. All right, fantastic. And again, that's tonight at 6.30 p.m. at the uh, Doubletree by Hilton in Newark. And if it's a little bit late for you to plan for this evening, there'll be another one. I misspoke. Uh, it's Thursday, March 5th at 6.30 p.m., also at the Doubletree Hilton in uh, Newark. And again, details on the web, don't invest and forget.com or 
plan wise. Pat Tatucci, his program, Don't Invest and Forget, Saturday mornings, 8 a.m., Monday evenings at 6 p.m. on our sister station, AM 1220, Business Radio 1220, KDOW. All right, Pat, thanks for the update. I'd like to talk to you again when there's nothing going on on the markets. We'll have to, we'll have to arrange for that to happen someday soon. All right, there's Pat Fatucci, 517. Here now, a look at traffic for you on the Tuesday election night ride home. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 521 on this election night here on KFAX. Early numbers, and I sort of preface that by saying that some of this counting is barely a percentile of the precincts reporting. But so far, Alabama, with 1% of the precincts reporting, is being called for Joe Biden. North Carolina, 1% being called for Joe Biden. Uh, I think to a great certainty, we can say that Virginia has gone for Biden with 63% of the vote counted there. And uh, Vermont, would you expect anything different? Uh, Vermont going for Bernie Sanders at this point. Um, Of course, we've got a long way to go. Here in California, we have well over two and a half hours before the polls close. Remind you that it is election night. They are open till eight o'clock this evening. So we want to urge you to go out there and get your vote to count. California, of course, is a key state in this race. With a total of 415 delegates across 58 counties at stake here, let's get a look at um, not only what's going on in terms of where California may go on the Democrat primary, but also California statewide Proposition 13. As we're joined by Pete Peterson, Pete is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy and a senior fellow with the Davenport Institute at Pepperdine University. And Pete, as always, a delight to have you with us. Always good to be with you, Craig. It's it's kind of an Eeyore evening in that we kind of anticipate the way things are going to go here in California. I would suspect we'll probably see it, though, nearly almost split between Biden and Sanders. What are your thoughts? Yeah, that appears to be the case. But, of course, with the new democratic process of uh, apportioning delegates based on how many votes you get, and, of course, you have to clear the 15% threshold to qualify, uh, there really is a lot to look for when we look at the final results. I mean, a few percentage points either way could uh, really determine how many delegates are apportioned uh, to either Biden or Sanders. Early on, and as I indicate, you know, we just have a small percentile of precincts checking in, but so far, any, any major surprises that you've seen? Well, sir, I think it has to be a surprise to see how well Biden is doing and to uh, understand really the import of uh, what happened in South Carolina over the weekend. Of course, I'm sure it's something you've been discussing on the show. It's not just the fact that Biden won. It is the, the scale and scope of his victory and the fact that he had won in uh, what up until this point was the most diverse state in America. And so what does that portend as we head into these other states? It's fair to say, as Biden said himself, that uh, most had written his campaign off. I mean, after several runs at the presidency over a number of different election cycles, Biden had never won a single state. And so for him to not only win a state, but to win it so convincingly, 
really has given a tremendous shot in the arm, of course, the consolidation now of the the so-called, although I believe that's an overfraught word here in this case, uh, the so-called moderate Democrats coalescing around Biden is uh, certainly also contributing to his uh, success thus far tonight. How much of this can we attribute to perhaps a growing sense of fear within the Democrat Party uh, that a Sanders ticket would be a challenge going against Donald Trump come November, just based largely, I think, in a lot of Sanders' policies and, and the way that he almost um, proudly wears the coat of socialist and, 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 and the sense of fear and trepidation that that tends to strike in the hearts of so many Americans? Yeah, I feel uh, the fear is existential, Craig, <laughs> and, and it's at all levels. I don't think there's uh, we should be um, uh, convinced of the fact that uh, the candidates like Buttigieg and Klobuchar just, you know, willy-nilly made up their minds to uh, close their campaigns uh, after South Carolina and immediately swing over to support Biden. I think there's been an extreme amount of pressure applied by the Democratic Party, which understands what kind of existential threat uh, Sanders um, presents to them. I mean, Sanders himself, as I'm sure many of your listeners have heard him speak on the campaign trail recently, uh, said that uh, the Democratic Party is becoming very nervous. And so uh, in some ways it appears that Sanders himself is even taking on the elites within the party and the party itself, its apparatus and leadership are obviously looking to consolidate, um, again, I think an overall term, but the so-called uh, moderate Democrats around the Biden campaign. So your sense here, and this is what surprised me, I would have thought, given the kind of stake that all of these people have, the skin in the game, so to speak, that they all have in this, that they would have at least stayed with it through today, through Super Tuesday, and then made up their minds. The fact that they looked at the results of the South Carolina primary over the weekend and said, yeah, we're done, probably indicative of what you're suggesting is more pressure coming from the DNC, that as this starts to get serious, they have to have a candidate that really is going to have a better chance, quote-unquote, of going up against Donald Trump, Trump come the, uh, the uh, general election. No, you're right. I mean, that, that, that timing really does speak to the fact that they only had to hang on for a couple more days, and there were states. I mean, you look at Amy Klobuchar's own Minnesota. I mean, right? I mean there's, she had a very good chance of doing well there, and Buttigieg in states like uh, Colorado and, and possibly Texas, certainly Maine uh, and Massachusetts would have been places where he could have picked up delegates as well. And I, again, while nobody from the party itself has come out to say this, I don't think there's really any doubt that the party apparatus, the elites within the Democratic Party, applied extreme pressure and probably offered some uh, enticements uh, along the way to Buttigieg and and Klobuchar to drop out when they did and then to swing their support uh, toward Biden. Yeah, somebody's going to be offered uh, maybe a, a cabinet seat or something should there be a, a win come November, uh, which is a long way off. That said, here statewide California, while there are a number of communities that are voting for various seats here and there, um, the only real statewide proposition for consideration is Prop 13, not to be confused with the 
property tax measure of many years ago. In this case, Prop 13, $15 billion in general obligation bonds to school and college facilities. Uh, This runs the gambit from colleges, schools, even down to uh, elementary schools. What is your sense? Californians still have an appetite for getting further in debt. Uh, It's, you know, a constant theme on this program that we seem to spend more money after more money after more money with very little change in the outcome. Uh, Is there any limit to how far Californians are willing to uh, straddle themselves with debt in order to put more money into education? I realize this is facility-based, but nevertheless, it's taking on more obligation, which means ultimately higher taxes. Well, I agree, Craig, and I think, uh, you know, we should understand that there's been a a lot of strategy here by the supporters of Prop 13 uh, to place it on this March ballot. We haven't seen a lot of television advertising around it, and so what that speaks to me is that the strategists in support of the campaign, obviously you're looking at the teachers' unions and the public sector unions more broadly, are believing that with a with a turnout in a low turnout kind of race, which, you know, March primaries, even a Super Tuesday, uh, tends to be a lower turnout uh, race versus a general election ballot placement, that they believe that they've got the grassroots organizing, uh, certainly with a Democratic primary at the top of the ticket, so you know you're already driving out more Democratic voters than you would see in a general election when there's at least a Democrat versus Republican. I believe the the supporters really feel that this is the strategy, that they only have to win by one vote, and they see that they have a, a good chance of winning. Well, uh, we'll certainly know all the results by uh, later on tonight. Pete, we appreciate the time and the insights. For folks that really get a sense that there's a, some challenges, certainly to be sure here in the state of California, uh, but elsewhere in the world of politics, that perhaps need more influence by people of value, people of faith, to stand up for the right thing, not to just watch all of this happen to us, but rather to play an important role in the shaping of public policy. Um, Certainly the Pepperdine School of Public Policy exists for that very purpose, to help raise the next next army, so to speak, of people that are going to be public policy experts and influencers and shapers. Spend a quick moment, if you would, and and for folks that are not familiar with uh, the Pepperdine School, give us a little bit of a snapshot. Sure, Craig. Well, we're uh, certainly one of the only uh, what you might call center-right graduate policy schools in America based here in Malibu, California. We offer a a two-year master's in public policy degree that's for students that are considering a career in politics. Uh, That includes uh, not only here in the state of California, but also Washington, D.C., uh, and the Foreign Service as well. So our students go off to an array of of different careers uh, in policy and politics, both elected and staff, and uh, all over the world. And so our website here is publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu, and it's a great time as we talk so much about politics here on Super Tuesday to, to think about engaging on these issues directly, and, and our degree certainly helps uh, prepare leaders to do that. More information available on the web at pepperdine.edu forward slash public policy. That's pepperdine.edu forward slash public policy. And our appreciation to Pete Peterson, who was the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, for that update on the election results so far this evening. 5.33 on the clock. Let's pause and get you an update 
here on Traffic from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. A timely conversation, perhaps, in relationship to the fact that we're here on Election Day, Super Tuesday in California and a number of states across the Union, Um, a conversation related to the issue of character, one that at many levels seems to sort of strangely have disappeared from our nation. It could be argued that there was a a turning point, perhaps uh, politically so, Uh, with the election of Bill Clinton back in 1992, that it became apparently less important for voters to have somebody that um, was an individual of high integrity and demonstrated character. Uh, But then again, there's been a slow, steady march out of the notion of value and integrity and character for a long time in our country. Go back into the 1960s, we begin to see a significant paradigm shift where we've suddenly gone from understanding and accepting that there is truth and that there is truth absolutely to questioning even the existence of very truth itself. This, I think, is ultimately having a profound impact on not just the body politic, but the overall condition of America today. So we're going to spend some time in the next half hour, talking about the issue of character and answering the question, or maybe making the assertion, that yes, character still counts. A new book by that title has just been written by our guest tonight. He is a pastor, author, and past president of the Southern Baptist Convention. You're probably familiar with his ministry, Touching Lives, a television program seen nationwide and in an additional 122 countries. He has been a popular voice on issues of faith and leadership on everything from Fox News to Time Magazine, 60 Minutes, and so on. We're joined now by Dr. James Merritt. The book, Character Still Counts, It Is Time to Restore Our Lasting Values. And Dr. Merritt, thanks so much for being with us today. Craig, the honor is mine. Thank you for having me. Wow. You know, this is interesting because we live in a day and an age when we seem to have embraced a significant paradigm shift where we engage in more relationships on a transactional level than we really do on a values level. Now, certainly when I was a kid growing up, um, instilled in me was the notion that the people that you hang out with should be people that are honest that are hardworking. The people that influence your life should be those that set a good example through their stewardship, through their participation in everything from uh, being a good member of the community and a good citizen to being faithful at church attendance and certainly being a person of of character. Um, Oddly enough, though, the, the shift to sort of a, well, we have a relationship not based on how good you are, honest you are, or valuable you are from a character standpoint, but rather what I can get out of you seems to be where we've we've been headed as a nation for a couple of generations now, don't you think? Well, no question about it. And I, I tell you, for some of your listeners may remember, Craig, but years ago there was a great tennis player named Andre Agassi. And there was a camera company that's no longer in existence, but they did a series of ads in a campaign that was really very effective. And, and the theme of the ads was uh, image is everything. And I believe, Craig, to your point, that our culture has definitively bought into that. 
that uh, you know we see it even with politicians in the in the sixty second soundbite, uh, making sure that their you know their pictures are airbrushed and making sure that you know from a public persona, regardless of what they may be privately, that you know they're hitting on all eight cylinders. And the truth of the matter is, I believe it really has been to our detriment because image is not everything. Character is everything. Reputation is not what's most important about us. It is our character that really counts. Indeed so. And certainly that's the lesson that we learn from Scripture. Um, sadly, apparently, understanding and application of Scripture <laughs> is not, not a requirement for public office. And, and sadly, we're finding on a growing basis because of biblical illiteracy and a decline in, in true biblical um, discipleship, even in the church today, that, that the notions of, of, of upholding, celebrating, and even mentoring what real character is seems to be on the decline. And especially in our homes, and, and, and this is one reason why, believe it or not, the book's not even, I would say, primarily for leaders, though I hopefully leaders will read it, but it really is a book for moms and dads and parents who are trying to hopefully mentor and model for their children uh, what character really is all about. And, you know, you said something, Craig, and I would say this even as your listening audience who may not be believers, and may not believe the Bible is divine scripture as we are, as we do. But I will tell you one thing I challenge people to do. If you will read scripture, and you'll read it simply from the point of view of what it teaches in terms of morality and ethics and character, I've never met anyone yet that was the poorer for reading it and applying its principles, because what I have found, and it's not the reason I'm a believer, but it's the result of being a believer, I have found, believe it or not, Craig, that the Bible works. It really is true. For example, uh, Solomon said, if you want to have friends, be a friend. Well, we've found that to be true. Uh, but the scriptures teach very plainly that what's more important than knowledge is wisdom. Knowledge can get you in trouble. Wisdom will keep you out of it. So to your point, I just want to just say amen and say, you know, there is so much we can learn from scripture on how to be better parents how to be better neighbors, how to be better citizens, how to be better public leaders if we just read it and believe it and live it. Sometimes people shy away from the notion of engaging in integrity because they recognize that there's a cost to it. That sometimes to be a man or a woman of integrity means that you may lose friends. You may not be the most popular person. Um, there can be a lot of ways in which people shy away from you because you're willing not to, uh, to play the game, so to speak. But at the end of the day, from a biblical standpoint, Dr. Merritt, is integrity and the exercising thereof something that we should be compelled to do to please the Lord regardless of the cost? Well, I'll even go larger than that. I, the answer is yes, but let me give you a longer answer. When I was asked to do the book by my publisher, there were two things I insisted on. I said, I, 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 want to, I know what I want the first chapter to be, and I know what I want the last chapter to be. And it's not coincidental that when, for those that will pick up the book, the very first character trait I talk about is integrity. And the reason is I believe that integrity is the foundation of all character. No matter what else is true, Craig, when you read the list of character traits I talk about, if, if, if you do not have, if you're not a person of integrity, uh, then one thing is for certain, most of the rest of these character traits will never, ever come uh, into fruition. So, you know, I, I talk about that integrity is simply always doing the right thing at the right time in the right place 
regardless of the cost or the consequences. And the reason why a lot of people uh, are, are so willing to forsake integrity is because we're living in a day and age where you can make Mark this out as a guarantee, whether it's in the business world or the entertainment world or the financial world or the political world. If you determine that you're going to be a person of integrity, you will have to pay a price and you will incur a cost. Our visit with Dr. James Merritt, author of a new book called Character Still Counts. It is time to restore our lasting values. We pause on that point. We'll come back to more of the conversation. When we come back, let's wrestle through the question, what does character matter if we're pleased with the outcome? That is our visit today with best-selling author, former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Dr. James Merritt, continues. 5.46 on the clock. Let's get you updated on traffic from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Character still counts, though it might arguably be seemingly on the endangered species list in our culture and society today. Welcome back to the conversation with us as best-selling author, pastor, former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Dr. James Merritt. The new book, by the way, newly published by Harvest House, available at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also order it through the broadcast ministry of touchinglives.org. That's the name of Dr. Merritt's television program, Touching Lives. And again, the website, touchinglives.org. Let's say, for example, Dr. Merritt, we have a business, a large corporation, and we're uh, we're trying to make gold here. We recognize that if we make gold in the quarter, uh, that means that the big company is going to give us some bonuses. There's one or two people on staff that are kind of struggling, and boy, that bonus money would mean everything in the world to them. So a leader decides, you know, we're going to take some of the sales that are actually slated for the next quarter, and we're going to artificially move them into this quarter um, in order to essentially puff up the numbers so that it gives the appearance that we've reached goal. Now, certainly we'll be a little shy in the next quarter, but we've got three months to worry about that. The key is that we want to get the numbers up this month, this quarter, so that we can get those bonuses. Some people look at that with sort of a sense, I think, of um, situational ethics and would say, well, at the end of the day, Dr. Merritt, what does it matter for character if we are, in the end, pleased with the outcome? Well, because the end, frankly and honestly, does not justify the means, because the truth of the matter is uh, you didn't reach your goal. Uh, You may lie to yourself, but there's, there's one person you can't lie to. You can't lie to God. And there's a verse in the scripture that says, be sure your sin will find you out. And you you know how this works, Craig. A hundred percent of the time, eventually, this will catch up with you. If you don't believe it, I talk about a man in the book, Bernie Madoff. Everybody knows that name. Go talk to him about that very uh, example and ask him this question. How did it work out for him? Not so well. There's an old saying that is still true and it will always be true. Honesty truly is the best policy, because at the end of the day, you have to live with yourself, and you have to live with what you know is true about you, and what you know God is true about, that what God knows is true about you. 
You know, when I was growing up as a young man and these sort of moral dilemmas would, would present themselves, uh, quite often my father would say, well, you know, here are the reasons why, and it would go through a sort of a laundry list of, of what was, uh, you know, proper from a social acceptability standpoint, what was proper from a biblical standpoint. Um, and, and ultimately, he would typically end by saying, and in the end, it's the right thing to do. Sadly, that mentality of taking that approach to say, you know what, sometimes it may be more expedient to make a decision that's not honorable, to uh, a sort of abandoned character, to dispense with integrity, to look the other way. Sometimes, though, at the end of the day, it just comes down to being a matter of doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. I wonder if maybe part of the problem here is, Dr. Merritt, as in the, the fictitious example I cited, that we tend to sometimes, rather than take God at face value and his word at face value, we want to sort of negotiate here. We want to say, well, on one hand, the Bible says this, but, you know, on the other hand, and then we sort of come up with this often, you know, made up out of thin air laundry list of all of the reasons why we're going to negotiate our way into convincing ourselves that in spite of everything appearing to be wrong and inappropriate, we do it anyway because we've negotiated our way into it. Well, Greg, you, you give a great uh, a point, make a great point that I want to gladly speak to. And that is, yes. Are there seemingly ambiguities in Scripture and things that you have to work out from time to time? Yes, but here's the cold, hard truth. Just take the Ten Commandments. Let's say you had nothing else in the Old Testament but the Ten Commandments. The sad thing for many people, Craig, is that the Ten Commandments are just plain. They're not hard to understand. A five-year-old child, a six-year-old child can understand the Ten Commandments. And one of those, of course, is you shall not lie. You shall not bear false witness. And, and the truth of the matter is, when it comes to morality and ethics and the kind of character that God demands, the Scripture does not stammer and it does not stutter. It is extremely very, very plain. And, and, and in fact, I would go ahead to say this. This is why even the very person and existence of God is so important. It was Dostoevsky, the great Russian, who said, without God, everything is permissible. And the reason why people who deny God better be careful that they don't get what they ask for is apart from God, here's the cold, hard truth. If there is no God, there is no right, there is no wrong. It's all a matter of personal opinion. And at the end of the day, everybody can really get away with anything. But if there is a God, no one gets away with anything, including compromising your own character. Certainly there are countless reasons demonstrated throughout Scripture that low character has a high cost, and you talk about it throughout the book. We sometimes tend to, I think, um, going back to my previous comment about negotiating our way through things, we tend to sometimes pick and choose uh, which standards we wish to follow. We might say, well, you know, uh, so-and-so is, is, is dishonest in these areas, and we know he cheats on his wife, but, you know, um, he, he's one of the best salespeople we've ever seen, or, boy, he sure knows how to deliver on his promises. Is there such a thing as a sliding scale in God's world when it comes to character, or, or are we incumbent uh, to, to show ourselves faithful to the whole counsel of the Word? Well, you've answered your own question. It's obviously the latter, and I would say this. The problem with that analogy, as you well know, Craig, is this. 
a man may be a great salesman. For example, let's just take one character trait in the book, perseverance. Maybe this guy's a great salesman because where everybody else quits, he'll make one more knock on a door. He'll make one more phone call. He'll take one more appointment. So his sales are up. But at what cost? He, he has no integrity. He's not honest. His pride has overtaken him. He's not even loyal to his own wife, or he's not even loyal to his, to his own family or his own company. He's lost all respect for himself, therefore he can't really respect others. He's not authentic. He's a fraud, fraud, and he's a fake. And you can just go right down the list and see, yeah, there may be that one little bright speck in the picture, but the big picture as as a whole is nothing but mud and dirt on canvas. In the book, Character Still Counts, you refer to the 92 shift that we saw politically with Clinton's election and, and certainly borne out by his his reelection post everything that had gone on with impeachment and uh, Monica Lewinsky at all. Uh, and you, you quote a political pundit saying, and, and sort of, a, I, I think, a, 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 a bit of a uh, black eye for America, that if it's a choice between bad character and good economic news, good economic news will always win. Um, and, and certainly if this is true in the body politic on a national level, I have to wonder, um, if judgment begins in the house of the Lord, are we going to be held accountable when we allow our own character to be for sale? Uh, we're going to be held even more accountable because you said it. judgment does begin at the house of God. And I would say this to every believer that's listening. A true believer not only must hold themselves to a higher standard, Craig, a true believer will have a burning desire in their heart to hold themselves to a higher character, which is why judgment does begin at the house of God. Where else would we expect it to begin? At the very place where God holds us most accountable, which is his own people in his own church. A sobering look at, quite frankly, what ought to be um, an indictment on all of us, for all of us, I think, uh, in, in every level, in every aspect uh, of life, we need to count the cost and um, realize that, um, you know, uh, in, integrity and character does come with the cost, uh, but the rewards from a scriptural and biblical viewpoint are out of this world. The book is called Character Still Counts. It's time to restore our lasting values Newly published by Harvest House. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Again, I'll also mention that it's available directly through uh, the website of Dr. Merritt's ministry online at touchinglives.org. That's touchinglives.org. Dr. Merritt, thanks so much for the time and the insights. The honor was mine. God bless you, sir. Take care now. There's Dr. James Merritt, the new book, Character Still Counts. You bet it does. Six o'clock from KFAX. Let's get a look at traffic for you right now. We head over to the KFAX Traffic Center.